So John chapter 9, Pastor Seth has read that passage to you, so keep your finger on that. Um, My name is Godwin, I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I have the privilege of being on the preaching team this summer as our pastor, our senior pastor, Jeremy Rennie, is gone. Um, Please continue to pray for him and his family, as well as Jennifer Bull and her family. Uh, When Jeremy first assigned me this passage, I thought he was trying to play a trick on me. It's 41 verses long. It's a whole chapter. And I thought, you know, I I know I'm the new guy, and I need to go through kind of this unspoken hazing process. (laughs) But I thought I'd already gone through that last summer when I had to preach through some of those tricky Deuteronomy texts, but I guess not. So here we are, John chapter 9, a whole chapter. Uh, We're coming off two chapters of great tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. Two chapters where there is a lot of friction, there's a lot of pain. It seems like now, in this chapter, we're taking kind of a break, a break from the madness, a break from the mess. And chapter 9 is a wonderful story, as we've just heard, about the healing of a blind man. Now, this chapter is really chock full of lots of stuff. It's packed with narrative twists and theological insights and characters. Lots of conversations are taking place. There's a lot going on in this chapter. So there's so much going on that on Monday morning this past week, I was trying to figure out what sermon that I would preach. Maybe I'd preach a sermon on the works of God uniquely displayed in children with disability. Looking at the first few verses of John chapter 9, we see that Jesus says these words. He says, this happened, this guy was made blind, so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. So maybe he can talk about children with disability. That would be an interesting sermon. I'd like to hear about that sometime. Maybe I could preach a sermon about good parenting, all right? You notice in the middle of this chapter, the Pharisees are interrogating the healed man's parents. And what happens? They say, yes, this is our son. He was blind from birth. But they avoid questions about Jesus. So maybe I can talk about not throwing your kids to the wolves to save your own skin. Maybe I could preach the sermon, Holy Sarcasm. Look at verse 26. It's one of my favorite parts of this chapter. Right in the middle of the second interrogation that the Pharisees gave to the healed man, they asked him, what did, you, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? The healed man answered, I have told you already. You did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? When I was in college, I used to tell people, there's no love in sarcasm. But thankfully, God, in the book of Job, Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, and here our protagonist utilized sarcasm. So there is a holy sarcasm, which I'm very thankful for. So what sermon should I preach this morning? Well, I want to briefly invite you into my head a little bit as I came to this text. 
When I was uh, growing up, I used to play the violin. In fact, it was my big thing to do. And uh, I played from the age of four all the way up till high school. And uh, in fact, I was so into violin, I considered uh, doing performance, violin performance at the University of Michigan. That thought lasted about 15 seconds, thankfully. It would have been a lot of work. Well, one of the things I used to do, I used to play sonatas and concertos, and sonatas and concertos, they're unique in that they have three movements. In the first movement, the melodic theme is introduced. In the second movement, the melodic theme is kind of developed and experimented with. And then in the third movement, the melodic theme, which runs all the way through, is reintroduced. It's kind of a recapitulation of that theme. Well, in the same way, every book in the Bible has a melodic line or a melodic theme that runs through it. And uh, it's really important for us to figure out, okay, what is the melodic line, what is the melodic theme in the Gospel of John? Because that's going to help us to know how to approach this specific passage. So we've looked at this before, but I just want to turn your attention again to John chapter 20. So flip over just a few pages to John chapter 20. And we're going to see in this section the melodic line, the theme that runs through the Gospel of John. John chapter 20, starting in verse 30. This is page 1075. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. And here it is. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the melodic line of the Gospel of John is simply to, the the, the writer wants to help his readers to know and to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the point of this whole book. Everything that is written in the Gospel of John revolves around that melodic theme. And so there's two questions when we approach any passage in the Gospel of John that we need to ask. The first question is, what does this passage reveal to us about Jesus as the Son of God? What does this passage reveal to us about Jesus as the Son of God? The second question is, what comment does this passage make about the nature of faith? What does this tell me? What does this passage tell me about the nature of trusting in Jesus as the Son of God? Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's what comment does this passage make about the nature of unbelief, not trusting in Jesus as the Son of God? So those are the two questions. I want to let these questions kind of guide us as we move through this passage. So let's pray together and ask for God's illumination. Father, we are desperate to hear from you this morning. We need a word from you. And so we ask that you would speak. Father, give us ears to hear and eyes to see wonderful things from your word. Prepare our hearts now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to move us through three movements in this text. There's a lot going on. We could really divide this passage up maybe in seven or eight different sections, but I'm going to look at three different sections. The first section is the miracle itself. The second section 
is the aftermath. What happens after Jesus heals this man? And the third section is the lesson. What's the point of the story? That's what we're going to do. So let's first look at the miracle. The first seven verses of this passage. Our first clue as to what is going on in this passage is found in verse 3, which I've alluded to earlier. Jesus says, this happened, this man was born blind, so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. So there it is. There's, There's our first clue as to what is going on in this passage. So God has a bigger purpose here with this blind man. Now, the question, of course, that all of us are wondering is, what is going to be displayed in this man's life? Is it simply physical healing? Well, we certainly know it's at least that, but there's more, as we will see. Our second clue in this passage, in the first few verses, is found in verse 5. Jesus says, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, that should sound familiar to us because in chapter 8, Jesus said those very words. He says, I am the light of the world. And so here is this theme reintroduced by Jesus. So whatever this passage is about, it has something to do with light. Now, it's not directly about Jesus being the light. We will see as the story unfolds that this passage is about how people respond to Jesus' light. How do people respond to Jesus' light? How do people respond to Jesus' presence? How do people respond to Jesus' words? That's what this passage is about. Then we see that the miracle itself happens. Jesus turns to this man. He mixes his spit with mud, and he puts it across his eyes. He goes and he washes in this pool, and he is spectacularly healed. But that's not where the story ends. So let's move to the second section, the aftermath. The largest section in this passage, verses 8 through 34. In this section, we're introduced to several characters. The neighbors of the blind man. We're introduced to the Pharisees, who we know quite a bit about at this stage. We're introduced to the blind man's parents as well. Now, we meet these characters in four separate conversations. And as we meet each of these characters, we get to know the healed man a little better. So as we look at these, section, these conversations, I want you to take note as we look at these verses of the healed man. I want you to take note of what is going on with this healed man in these four different conversations. So we're going to move very quickly through this section. So first we meet the neighbors in verses 8 through 12. Verse 8 reads, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? People with disabilities typically became beggars in the first century. And so naturally these neighbors were shocked to find one of the familiar town beggars. It's now healed. He can see. Is this the guy? So they ask him. Are you that man? Were you once blind? And he says, yes, I was. And we see that the healed man knows Jesus' name, and that's the extent of his knowledge. Look at 
Look at verse 11. He replies to the question by the neighbors, how then were your eyes opened? He says, the man they called Jesus made some money and put it on my eyes. And so all he knows about Jesus at this stage is his name. Then in the next conversation, verses 13 through 17, we're introduced to the Pharisees, the religious authorities of the day. And they question this man. We find, find out that Jesus actually did this healing on the Sabbath. And that should sound really familiar to us, right? The last time we heard about that was John chapter 5 when he healed somebody else on the Sabbath. And you remember the, the fallout from that. Why in the world did Jesus do it again? Well, it was certainly intentional. And so they, they question Jesus's, uh, Jesus' healing on the Sabbath again, and, and they become divided. Some of the Pharisees, as, as we see in the story, some of the Pharisees, they, they think, you know what? This guy must be a sinner because he healed on the Sabbath. And then other Pharisees, no, he, he, maybe he's not a, not a sinner. Maybe he's not a sinner because God used him to heal on the Sabbath. And so there's kind of this divide between the Pharisees. But we see that the healed man at the end of this conversation confesses a little bit more about Jesus. Look at verse 17. Finally, they, the Pharisees, turned again to the blind man. What have have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. So here we see that this healed man now knows Jesus as a prophet. We see that his faith is growing. And then you enter enter in the parents in verses 18 through 23. They enter into the scene and they confirm to the Pharisees that he was indeed born blind But they also avoid questions about Jesus because they feared being kicked out of the local synagogue. And what's interesting is the healed man doesn't avoid questions about Jesus. And he, as we see in the story, is eventually kicked out. So in the last conversation, it's the second interrogation, the Pharisees bring this healed man forward again. They question him. They insult him. And then in verse 33, look at what the healed man says. If this man, if Jesus were not from God, he could do nothing. So he's essentially saying, listen, Jesus must be from God. And what happens next? He's summarily expelled from the synagogue. Now, excommunication from the local synagogue is not like getting kicked out of a church on the South Shore. If we're kicked out of this church, we've got several churches in the area we can just bounce to. There was typically one synagogue per town in first century Jewish society. And the Jewish faith was so wrapped up in the society that getting kicked out of the synagogue was essentially like getting shunned by your entire town. So this is devastating. So we see two 
characters sharply contrasted in this part of the story. We see the Pharisees, we see their arrogance, we see their pride, their stiffness, their harshness. We see them making bombastic claims about Jesus that are ultimately very wrong. And we see in huge contrast to the Pharisees, the healed man who claims to know very little. He's got a simple faith who's humble. And this is the hero in our story, as we will now see. So let's move on to the last section of this chapter. What is the lesson of this story? Let's read verses 35 through 41. 35 through 41. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. So he'd heard about this excommunication. And when he found him, the healed man, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So, what is the point of this story, this chapter, this passage? It's found in verse 39 and again in verse 41. Let me read verse 39 for you. For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. In other words, Jesus is the light of the world who gives sight to the blind and blinds those who think they can see. Jesus is the light of the world who gives sight to the blind and blinds those who think they can see. So this story is actually a parable. It's not just a miracle story. This story is a parable that explains to us who spiritually sees Jesus and who spiritually does not see Jesus. That's what the story is all about. So let's dive in to that idea just a little bit. So the last half of verse 39, Jesus says that he comes into the world to blind those who think they see. So who do we expect to see Jesus? Who do we expect to see Jesus? Well... It's the religious, of course. It's the Pharisees, of course. That's who we expect to see Jesus because the Pharisees dedicated their lives to parsing the scriptures and guiding God's people. That's what they did. If anyone could have knowledge of the coming Messiah, if anyone could guide the people of God in finding Jesus, then it must be them. They had all the books. They had all the sermon tapes and and resources and the Christian websites. They had everything just at their fingertips. But they didn't see. 
And what's worse is that they thought they could see. What we see in chapter 7 and 8 and even here in chapter 9 is their arrogance and their defiance. It's astounding. I counted in chapter 7 and 8 15 times. 15 times where the Pharisees misunderstood, misread Jesus. And worse, made claims about him that were false. 15 times in two chapters. In this chapter, in chapter 9, I counted five times. Five times they make huge claims about Jesus that are just flat out wrong. You know, it's more than just their arrogance. The Pharisees were also so authoritarian, so dictatorial, that the man's parents, as you will recall, were scared and intimidated. You know, there's some religious leaders who lead and speak in such a way that they produce guilt in people. They produce fear in those that are following them. This happens outside the church, too. Of course, any position of authority, this can be a temptation. It's easy, I think, to lead people with subtle threat and manipulation. It's easy to do that. It's much more difficult to lead in such a way where people long to follow you. So the Pharisees, their leadership was doubly bad. It's bad on one hand as they led people away from Jesus with all their huge claims, all their bombastic claims. But it was also bad because it was a heavy-handed and fear-inducing inducing kind of leadership. Now, this is a strong warning to those of us who have grown up in the church, those of us that are religious professionals like me. This is a strong warning to really any of us who hold an authority position or who have a lot of spiritual knowledge. Jesus is telling us something this morning that's very strong. Pride in spiritual matters leads to spiritual blindness, not spiritual sight. Pride in spiritual matters leads to spiritual blindness, not spiritual sight. You know, I'm afraid for those of us in this room who, who, who walked into this sanctuary without a keen sense of our spiritual blindness. You know, some of us have walked inside this room with our MacArthur, our ESV study Bibles. We've got Tim Keller or John Piper on our podcasts. We've got scripture verses on our Facebook page. We attend every Bible study and event that this church has. We take our families to Soul Fest. Now, if anyone should see Jesus, then it should be us. Because we're swimming in the spiritual deep end every day, every week. But there is a very real possibility that we are more like the Pharisees than like the blind man. You know, all the things that we do, the the, the religious activities, reading Christian books, attending Bible studies, all of our Christian knowledge, they're all designed to help us see beyond our natural abilities, to see Jesus. Much like these glasses help me to see beyond my natural ability. 
Our problem is that sometimes we view these activities, the spiritual knowledge, as ends in themselves. Instead of putting the glasses on, in other words, letting the spiritual disciplines and Bible studies and church attendance and so on, instead of letting those things help us to see the glory of Jesus, we take the glasses off and we admire them. Wow, these are really trendy glasses. Look at my glasses. We compare them to others. My glasses are better than your glasses. This is the kind of attitude that the Pharisees had. It's not the kind of attitude that the blind man had. I want to plead with you this morning. Don't be like the Pharisees. Repent of your spiritual pride. Repent of your idolizing spiritual knowledge and religious activities. Repent and be more like the blind man. So, what was the blind man like? Well, I have three observations about the blind man to close our time together. Three observations about the blind man. First, the blind man accepts that he is spiritually blind. The blind man accepts that he is spiritually blind. He doesn't know a lot. In fact, on two occasions in this passage, verse 25 and 36, he admits that he doesn't know a lot. He doesn't get it. I find that so refreshing and so comforting. Notice one of the themes that's kind of laced throughout this passage is that the man was born blind. That's the whole point of the interrogation with the parents, right? Is this your son? Was he really born blind? Now, because this is a parable, this should signal to us that all of humanity, all of humanity is spiritually blind at birth. Our natural state is one of ignorance and one of desperation. Our default setting is is spiritual unawareness. We don't get it, even though we often think we do. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning with us, I'm glad you're here. I can promise you one thing. You will never see Jesus until you realize that you are inescapably blind. You will never see Jesus until you realize that you are inescapably spiritually blind blind. Maybe you're here today and your life is a wreck. Maybe your marriage is falling apart. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe your addictions have left you feeling empty yet again. Maybe it's something far less drastic and dramatic. But you've come to that severe knowledge of yourself And you are here ready to admit, I'm blind. If you're here today and you're wondering, why hasn't God taken me out? Why is God so patient with me? 
Why am I so spiritually blind? If you are here and you're wondering these things, you are exactly where you need to be to receive sight from Jesus. Two, though the healed man accepts his spiritual blindness, we see as the story progresses that he actually sees some things. He gets to see some things. And so we see in this passage that his knowledge and his love for Jesus grows. So, yes, it's important to accept that we're spiritually blind, but I also want to say that there's nothing wrong with actually seeing. Some people in this room see, but it's a different kind of seeing. It's a humble seeing. It's a seeing after never having seen at all. It's the kind of sight that is so caught up in what is being looked at, just Jesus, that it forgets the self. I saw recently a documentary of a woman who was blind at birth, completely blind at birth, and she lived her life, and as she grew older, she... She had several surgeries, and the first couple failed. She got married. She had children. And finally, she underwent a surgery where she was able to see when she woke up from it. And so she saw her husband for the first time. And she said, hey, I'm so glad my husband's good looking. I never knew, you know. <laughs> and she was so enamored Get this, with squirrels. Because everybody keeps telling her about these, these weird things called squirrels. What are squirrels? Well, she finally got to see what a squirrel was. You know, it, it, was, it was interesting to watch her as she was expressing her joy at being able to see. She was thankful she was grateful, she was humble, she was eager, she was excited. The posture of her heart had changed. This is the kind of spiritual sight that we want to go after, the kind of spiritual sight that the blind man certainly had. It's interesting, at the beginning, all he, all he knew was Jesus' name. And then he calls him a prophet. And he recognizes that, yes, he must be from God. And then at the end of our story, we see that he believes in Jesus and he worships him. And so we see this progression of faith. And so we can learn from this that when Jesus' light shines, when his light shines out, we don't always see everything all at once. And this is so comforting to me. It's a process, and so we should be patient with ourselves. Jesus is very happy and very willing to work with people who have an incomplete and immature faith. He's not going to give up on you just because you see things dimly. That's so encouraging to me. Three. Yes, the blind man's love and knowledge of Jesus grows, but we also see that his faith is simple. 
He has a very simple faith, doesn't he? It's expressed in verse 25. Whether Jesus is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know. One thing I do know, says this man. I was blind, but now I see. There's a lot of things this guy doesn't know, but there's one thing he knows. He knows he was blind, but now he sees. You know, how I wish for myself and this church community to express this kind of simple, experiential, and yet profound faith in Jesus. I had a good friend in college named Kyle. I knew him a little in high school, and we became very good friends in college. He was an exceptional engineering student, one of the brightest at the University of Michigan. When he was in high school, he became a Christian. And he tells a story of his conversion, and he becomes a Christian. And he was riding the school bus the day after he had become a Christian. And he, he, he says that there's, you know, all this clamor around him. People were talking about girls and sports and everything else that people, kids talk about on the school bus. And there he was sitting there, and he was looking out the window, and he was bouncing on his seat with joy. And for weeks and for months, this incredibly bright guy, all he could confess was, I was blind, but now I see My friend Kyle has gone to seminary. He's going to be a pastor one day. He has plumbed some of the depths of Scripture. His testimony is probably articulated very differently. But there was a time when he could say what the blind man said. I have a relative, a close relative, who lives in Sri Lanka. He's about 45 years old. He lives with his aged mother. His name's Mithrin. And he is mentally handicapped. He doesn't work. He doesn't contribute to society. But he can communicate. And one thing that he has confessed is, I was blind, but now I see. Last uh, Sunday evening, we heard several people share their stories. Several people tell us about their conversion experience. We saw people getting baptized here behind me. And there's a variety of backgrounds, a variety of stories, a variety of intellectual capability, and yet everybody's story finds their place here in verse 25. I was blind, but now I see. You know, a lot of us complicate Christianity. It's not that complicated. It's about a few simple truths, and it's about believing those few simple truths. It's about giving your life to a few simple truths. And that's why this blind beggar turned healed man is more of a Christian than anyone else in this story. So, John chapter 9, 41 verses. 
Jesus says, I came into the world to judge. Jesus divides this world. On one side are those who think they see. They might be religious. They might be non-religious secularists. They might be academics. They, They might be successful businessmen or atheists or spiritualists. They all think they get it, but they really don't. And so they will miss Jesus. And on the other side, on the other side, are the humble, the meek, the weak, the poor in spirit. They, of all people, shouldn't see Jesus, but they do. In this passage, we find this beautiful backwardness in God's ways, one of the great paradoxes that is in the Bible. If you want strength, then admit you are weak. If you want true knowledge and divine insight, then admit your intellectual inability. If you want to be holy, then confess your moral bankruptcy. If you want life, then admit you are dead. And if you want to see, then confess that you are blind. And Jesus will give you sight. He will give you sight. He will help you see things that you have never imagined. He will help you to see that he is the perfect provision for what you lack. He will help you to see that he died on the cross to reconcile sinners to God. He will help you to see that he rose again after three days so that sinners can have new life, a new hope, and a secure future with God. There's nothing better or more worthwhile than seeing Jesus and all that he has to offer. Let's pray. Father, we desperately want to see. We desperately want to see what you want us to see. We want to see the glory of Jesus. We want to see the power of Jesus. We want to see the love of Jesus. We want to know him. We want to grow in our knowledge of Jesus. So help us to see because left to ourselves, we are so very blind. Father, help those of us in this room that need to repent. Repent of our pride in spiritual matters. I pray, Father, that you would help us to recognize that we are blind. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.